0: One of the guiding principles of Shambhala is the children's fire. In this episode, Matt tells us about the wisdom imparted to him from Native American elders and how this simple principle could help us repair, protect and better care for the world we've inherited and the world we'll leave behind. There is no telling of the path that any one of our individual lives may, may follow. Uh, we, we make plans and we have some idea, and some of them are hopeful and some of them not so hopeful. But then stuff happens. So about 40 years ago, and as a young man, I'm in a squat in southeast London, and uh, the deal has gone wrong. I've got a gun held to my head and all kinds of crazy things are happening in that room. Somebody's vomiting in one corner of the room, somebody else is weeping and banging their head against the wall. Light is smashed against the floor. The guy with the gun is just screaming at me. And I have uh, one thought in my mind at that time. If I um, were to get out of this room in one piece and unhurt, what choices might I make? Because as things stand at the moment, it looks like prison and getting hurt are very high up that list. And that isn't really what I ever intended. It's just that I had been unable to find a story strong enough and a path strong enough, a song strong enough to feel that I could ride that song or ride that story and live this life the way I'd always imagined that I would live a life when I was just a child and a young boy. So I made it out of that room and I put as much distance between me and London as I could and ended up on the Isle of Anglesey. I trained as a gardener for two years and I became head gardener in a leadership development center specializing in using the outdoors, taking executives into the mountains and gorges and rivers and training them in leadership. And one day I asked the, the boss of this place if I, as the gardener, could go and witness what our business was doing with these executives and he said yes as long as you promise not to speak because you're the gardener and Sainsbury's executives are not interested in what the gardener has to say on leadership at least perhaps growing Brussels sprouts and things of that kind but not leadership so Mac you come along and you watch and learn and uh, no doubt it will be informative and it was because that afternoon Uh, two of these Sainsbury's executives squared up against each other and one of them threw the first punch which crunched into the head of the other one and a a full-blown, I have to say not particularly impressive but a full-blown fight broke out between these two Sainsbury's Sainsbury's people. I still claim to be the only one that's witnessed such a phenomenon and uh, it was startling. But I had no idea because I just thought, well, maybe this is just the sort of thing that happens on outdoor leadership development trainings. And no doubt the facilitator will jump in soon and elegantly and gracefully facilitate the learning outcomes, um, draw these two people apart and we'll continue our journey up this river gorge. But I looked across at him and I realized that he had no idea what to do. And since it looked a little bit like the world I'd come from, I thought I'd break my promise. So I stepped in, separated them, and as the group came around, this group of about six or seven people, I, I had this sort of illuminated moment when I said, listen, I think we have a choice. We could sit down on the grass here, and we could really make the effort to listen to each other, and inquire into how this ridiculous situation arose and perhaps we could indeed fulfill the program's objectives and learn something or we can get in the minibus and we'll go back to the center and there Sainsbury's head office will find out and you'll have to go back to wherever you came from and I don't think it's going to be look too good for you so not surprisingly they chose the the former option we sat down we talked and in the end of course they were hugging each other and everything was cool And overnight, I became a management consultant. Three years later, I was the head of consultancy. And then a year later, I started my UK business and then Russia and then Poland. None of this was because I was interested in such things. I had always known that it was a spiritual path. It was the only path that really interested me. But I had tried wearing white and following a guru, and that just didn't work. I caught a glimpse of myself in the mirror one day, and I thought, that just really does look ridiculous. I had already, as a teenager, bounced off Christianity. But the thing that really fired my soul and my imagination was everything to do with nature, with trees, with rivers, with mountains, with forests. And it is there that I did, and I still do, feel most deeply nurtured and enlightened. So I asked myself, who are the people that I know who spiritual traditions are built around these things of nature? And bear in mind, again, this is like 38, whatever, years ago. There was not much material around. But Native Americans, I thought, yes. And I knew that one or two of these medicine people at least still survived. Now I'm gonna tell the story later on uh, this evening, I think 6.40, we have another gig on here with, with music, about what actually followed, but to shortcut through. Now, a couple of years later, I'm sat in a glade in the forest in the coastal mountains of Northern California, and a council of, has been called and my Native American friends and mentors are sitting around and there is a seat left vacant for me. And they say, hey, come, Mac, come, sit down here. We wish to share with you something that we believe is profoundly important. Long, long time ago, our people asked the question, how shall we govern our people? We had become aware for a long time that our chiefs, Our leaders, women and men who sat in leadership of the tribe, many times elected or selected for this role, many times with the very best of intentions, over a period of time, began to make decisions and judgments which served rather better the interests of the chiefs and rather less the interests of the people who they were meant to serve. We believe This is a human phenomenon and needs to be guarded against because leaders, of course, can become tyrants. So we pondered this question. What could we do to remind and encourage our chiefs of their primary responsibilities? And we did what we always did in those times. We turned out and went into nature and people fasted and prayed and solo vision quests and all kinds of other ceremonies. And then the chiefs regathered and took their places. And one elder woman stood up and spoke to the other chiefs and said, we should kindle a little fire at the center of our council of chiefs and we will call this the children's fire. And every chief in our council will have to make a pledge to the children's fire. And the pledge will go no law, no decision, no action, nothing of any kind will be permitted to go out from this circle of chiefs that will harm the children. No law, no decision, no action. Nothing of any kind will be permitted to go out from this circle of chiefs that will harm the children. And when they spoke of the children, they didn't just mean human children, you see, which is our, I guess, automatic default place. They meant the young of all kind. This duty of care that humans have, that some still remember, to care and tend for all living things in this earth. And since for many indigenous people, the rocks, the earth, the sky, the clouds, the wind, the rain, fire before we even begin with animals and humans are all alive it is in fact a pledge to life they said we're telling you this story this little fragment of our wisdom our history because we want you to go back to britain and begin to speak about the children's fire and share it with anybody who would be interested particularly in business and in business circles. So even though we we know you're not interested in business and particularly in large corporates, we actually want you to go into those large corporates and begin to speak about the children's fire. And that is what I've been doing this last few decades. Thank you. How effectively is another question, but I have been speaking. So, at the very first business conference, after I got back, there was three to 400 people there, and I had been invited to speak. But I was like I am today, actually, a sort of um, somebody who they quickly whipped in because somebody else couldn't do it. So I stood there, and the, the guy who was running the conference, who was the ex-sustainability director for one of the big oil companies, had no idea what I was going to speak about and I spoke about the children's fire. And I could feel him getting more and more uncomfortable as he sat next to me. And in truth, he was actually a rather sweet man, verging on elderly, a lovely grandfather perhaps, to somebody, I hope. But he really was nervous that his conference was about to go down the plug hole. And I got to the point when I said, can you imagine people? Can you imagine? What would happen in our society, whether in all institutions of power, in business, in religion and the churches, in universities, in colleges, in our homes, in all our public sector, in every single forum where power is dispensed, can you imagine if the directors, the board board members, all the chiefs of these places were obliged to make a pledge to the children's fire. Can you imagine the impact this would have on our society? And furthermore, what kind of society is it that would not make a pledge to the children's fire? And in my mind, I was thinking it's an insane society. It's a species that believes that it no longer has a place at the table of life. It is a self-harming people, a people who have lost connection with everything that is beautiful and trustworthy. It is a people so profoundly lost that there is no real sense of home and no real sense of belonging. Can you imagine, people, how it would be Were we to insist on the leaders of all institutions of power that they take the pledge of the children's fire? Now, at this point, my friend here just couldn't bear it any longer because there was a very long pause after I'd said this. And I allowed the pause to extend and extend. And then I thought, well, why not just keep letting it extend and extend? Because it was totally silent. So this long, profound silence went on. In the end, he sort of suddenly hurtled out of his seat. And he didn't mean to, but he swung his arm like this and knocked me back in my chair. So I landed back in the chair. And I was thinking to myself, like, like, well, at least I can report back that I fulfilled my promise. And I'm quite happy to shut up and sit down now. But as he did this, he leant forward to all the people, and he said, Don't worry, ladies and gentlemen. Very soon we'll get down to the important work. And from the back of the hall, right up where the bar is, lights blinding pitch black from the speaker's point of view, this voice rang out from the back of the hall. Why don't you sit down? This room is full of grief and unshed tears. Why don't you sit down? And let this silence continue. And then he stood on the, on the edge of the stage and he said, well, he said, if, 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 and he's peering into the darkness, if, 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 if everybody... Complete silence. He sits down again. Can you imagine? I stood up. Can you imagine, people, what we could do? Were we to leave the clinic and deregister as profoundly mentally ill as a species, and clutching sanity in our left hand, step forward and pledge ourselves as chiefs. And now I'm speaking about every single one of us. All people have this option to stand proudly there and say, I take this pledge to go to a river, to go to a little, kindle a little fire over a beautiful meal before you begin the meal with a lover as you make love to make the pledge of the children's fire and then live in accordance with it. So the most wonderful thing for me at Embercombe, in Devon is when the Shambhala team came to Embercombe for one of their weekend retreats at a time when they were really cooking and this whole idea of what this festival stands for and leading the way in the whole festival scene around sustainability and a festival that which should include all the wonderful festive partying aspects of a festival but also put a stake in the ground for things of beauty and things of wonder that they came, and when I shared with them the story of the children's fire, they then said, is it yours, Mac, or is it ours? And I said, it was never mine, and it is always and forever ours. And they said, then we will take it, and we will embed it at the heart of Shambhala. And my time is running out, so thank you very much. Thanks to Mac and thanks to you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.